Well, good morning. We are grateful to have Aaron Blanton. I know he's been up leading us several times now. You may or may not know that Aaron is on staff with Fellowship, has been here since September. He and his family, his wife Mandy, their three children. And Aaron is our pastor of worship and arts and is just doing a wonderful job leading us as a church in the way that we think about God through worship, the way that we gather and celebrate that each morning. And I know you've seen that and appreciated that even this morning. Well, let me reintroduce myself to those of you I haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Rob. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. I spend most of my time at our Franklin location. Michael, Bill, and Lloyd come down there as well from time to time, so we're still a team. And I have a chance every now and then to be with you all. And I'm glad to be back with you this morning particularly in this series on Abraham, uh, which I know I am coming to appreciate and and love this story uh, with a new sense of appreciation and joy as we've walked through this series. We're about five or so weeks in, and if you want to sort of summarize what this series is all about, I think you could say it this way. The question Abraham's life begs of us is what does it look like to live faithfully between the promises of God on the one hand and the reality of our lives living in a broken, fallen creation. And some of the tension that we all feel, even this morning as Aaron was asking you, who's had a busy week and you know, who has a lot going on in our lives? Some of that busyness just tends to crowd out The reminder for us that we serve a God who's been faithful to us and is continuing to be at work. And this text in the book of Genesis, the life of Abraham, helps ground us back into that truth. Now, Abram, as he's called in this early portion of the story, doesn't do this perfectly. He doesn't do this faith walk perfectly, does he? In fact, we've already seen him make big mistakes and stumble. But in the chapters that we're in right now, specifically chapters 13, 14, and 15 of Genesis, These are one of the high points of Abram's life, one of the high points of his faith. In this chapter in particular, we see Abram fearing God, living according to what God has asked him to do, promised him to do. In fact, last week, Lloyd, as he began chapter 14, he asked you this question at the end. He said, sometimes biblical faith invites you to let go and sometimes it invites you to take up your sword and fight. Where are you on that spectrum right now? What is God asking you to do? And he left you with that question. As I was thinking about that question this week and reading Genesis chapter 14, I realized this chapter is an example of Abram doing both. Last week you saw him take up his sword to fight. This week you're going to see him open up his hands and let go of something that could have benefited him very greatly. And we want to pick up In Genesis chapter 14, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up. Last week, Lloyd talked about the first 16 verses, the story of Lot and his family who they're now living near the city of Sodom. They get caught up in this war between these kings and Lot and his possessions and likely his whole family get captured, taken away as slaves, taken away as prisoners. They lose everything they have, their possessions, their land, their freedom. They get swept up by these kings that had come from this land to the east in Mesopotamia. And then Abram, in an incredible courageous act of faith, picks up his sword, 
musters his men, forms an alliance with three other of, of, of the clan leaders around him, these three brothers, and goes and attacks the enemy force at night. And through a brilliant strategic move, wins this victory and recaptures Lot, his family, frees them. And in the process, he apparently gets a lot of possessions, a lot of loot, so to speak. The spoils of war are now in Abram's hand as the victor over this significant uh, alliance of kings from Mesopotamia who had swept in. And we'll pick it up in verse 17. I want you to look along with me as I read it. It'll also be on the screen. I want us to read just the first two verses to begin with, verses 17 and 18 of Genesis 14. Then after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, meaning Abram, at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he, Melchizedek, was a priest of God most high. Now this is an interesting contrast of two kings that come out to meet Abram on his way back from the battle. And the writer of this book, whom we believe to be Moses, goes out of his way to make sure the reader understands that these two kings were very different. And one of the ways he contrasts these two kings is with their names or their titles. Let's look first at the king of Sodom. He's the first one mentioned. Now, the word Sodom doesn't necessarily mean specifically anything in Hebrew, but it has come to be associated with evil, with disobedience, with depravity. And even by the time that these words were written down, anyone who heard the name Sodom would have immediately thought of God's judgment and would have thought of the evil that this city had committed. So as soon as you hear, as soon as you read the king of Sodom, you need to think of a man who was leading his people in a disobedient rebellious, evil lifestyle. And that indeed is how this king is described as the passage unfolds. Now you contrast the king of Sodom with the king of Salem. Now Salem was a city that we actually believe was more than likely Jerusalem. It would become to be called later on Jerusalem. But Salem means peace. It's the same Hebrew root as shalom, right? Meaning peace, So the king of Sodom on the one hand, the city of evil, and the king of peace, the king of Salem on the other hand. Now what's more is we get the name of this king of Salem. It's a man who's not been mentioned up to this point in the scripture. His name is Melchizedek. And his is one of those names that's important to know what it means. Melchizedek is the combination of two Hebrew words, Melech, which is the word for king, and Sadiq, which is the word for righteousness. So Melchizedek is literally the king of righteousness or the righteous king. So you have this righteous king, the king of righteousness from the city of peace. And you have this king of this evil city, Sodom. And there's a deliberate contrast on the author's part. Now why do we mention this? Why is that important as you look at this text? Because you're about to see another contrast. Not only is there a contrast between two kings, but there's a contrast between what these kings offer to Abram. Both are going to offer something to Abram, and his response to their offers is very different from one another. Let's start with the king of Salem, Melchizedek. 
I want to move forward in the text, but let's back up one verse. Let's reread verse 18, and then I'll move forward through verse 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him, meaning Melchizedek blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Now, this is a very interesting encounter. This king of Salem, which was likely Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem, Salem meaning peace, this king of righteousness over the city of peace, appears out of nowhere to speak a blessing over Abram as he returns from the battle. And by the way, we don't hear anything else about Melchizedek in the narrative of Abraham or even in the story of Genesis after this one incident. Melchizedek appears out of nowhere and then he disappears almost into thin air. And of course, that has made scholars wonder, what's going on here? Well, just because so little is mentioned about Melchizedek does not mean he's unimportant. In fact, Melchizedek, as it'll come to be seen as scripture unfolds, is a very significant man in the history of God's redemptive plan. And I want to point out a couple of ways why Melchizedek is important. And that will help you better understand this offering of the blessing that Melchizedek is giving to Abram. For one thing, this is the first time that a priest has been mentioned in the scripture. So no priest has ever been mentioned in Genesis or in in, in scripture at all up until this point. Now what is a priest I've got to take a quick aside to explain this because many of us, unless you grew up in a, uh, perhaps a Roman Catholic tradition or, or an Orthodox Christian tradition, you probably don't have a clear view of the role of a priest. The priest's role is to act as a mediator or a go-between between the people and God. So the priest in Old Testament days would offer the sacrifice in the Roman Catholic tradition the priest is the one that offers the sacrifice of the service of the sacrament the priest is the one who prays for the people on their behalf and in some traditions the priest is the one that you go and confess your sins to and he speaks forth forgiveness of God for you this idea of priest is a mediator a go-between representing man to God representing God to men that's the biblical concept of priest now you may be thinking why don't we have priests today in our tradition we'll get to that there's a very good reason that we do not do not have those kinds of priests today But let's talk about Melchizedek because he's described as a priest but this was an era before there were priests at least Levitical priests or Hebrew priests. So as you recall, Abram will later have a son and then that son will have a son and that son will have a son and Abram's great-grandchildren become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel and one of those great-grandsons is named Levi. And God chooses the clan of Levi, the, the tribe of Levi, to be the tribe of priests. That's why we call them the Levitical priests and you weren't a priest in Hebrew culture unless you were from the tribe of Levi. So Melchizedek, obviously not from the tribe of Levi, Levi hasn't even been born yet, is a different kind of priest. 
Now there's another way that Melchizedek's a different kind of priest. He's not just a priest. He's a king. He's a king priest or a priest king. If you think about Old Testament history, you know that that didn't happen. There was a separation of power, separation of office between the priests, the Levites, and the king over here. And the king couldn't be a priest and the priest couldn't be the king. God separated that in Israel's government intentionally. It's maybe a little bit like our balance of power, the executive branch, the judicial branch, etc. So what was Melchizedek doing before Levi? And how and why was he a king and a priest? That's the mystery Now, we don't know anything else about Melchizedek until David is writing Psalm 110, about a thousand years after Melchizedek arrives on the scene. Psalm 110 is a psalm that is a prophecy. It's a prophecy about Messiah, the Savior, the King, the eternal King to come. And in Psalm 110, you don't need to turn there, but I want to read to you what David says. God is speaking through David in this psalm. And this is what God says about Messiah that is to come. This king, Messiah that is to come. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So you see what David does through the Holy Spirit is he goes back a thousand years. He grabs this character who's only mentioned in Genesis 14 at that time. And he says, Melchizedek was a priest king. Messiah is going to be a priest king. But Messiah is going to be a priest king forever. His kingly reign will never end. His priestly responsibility, his priestly duty will never end. You might say it this way. Jesus, who is Messiah, would be the greater Melchizedek. The greater priest king. The true king of righteousness. Right? That title. Now, we know this to be true because the author of Hebrews, when he's writing, he gets to Hebrews chapter 5, he's describing Jesus, and he grabs onto this prophecy in Psalm 110. He says, this priest in the line of Melchizedek, in the order of Melchizedek, this is Jesus. This is the one David was foreseeing. And he describes Jesus as this eternal priest, this eternal king. The priest role, the king role, come together forever, eternity. This is Jesus Christ. You might... Think of it this way. What's so important about Melchizedek? He gives us a glimpse of Messiah. He gives us a glimpse of Jesus Christ. He points our attention to the one who would fulfill this role that is hinted at way back in Genesis chapter 14. Jesus would come to be seen and known as the greater Melchizedek the true king of righteousness, the eternal priest king whose reign from the city of peace will never end. This is the significance of Melchizedek. Now I want to go back to Genesis chapter 14. We've just sort of taken this theological journey throughout the Bible. Let's come back to what was happening in this particular text. What we have is this fascinating glimpse, this record of the meeting of Abram and Melchizedek, these two spiritual giants. And they they may have had other interaction before or after this, we don't know, but at least for this one moment, they met, they came together. There's something interesting to us about two important people meeting, isn't there? 
uh, I was reminded of one of my favorite memories from Dallas Seminary, my days at Dallas. Uh, one of the reasons I went to Dallas, as is true of many students of that school, is a professor named Dr. Howard Hendricks. Michael knows Prof, as he's called, very well. And Michael talks about Prof a lot. And one of the reasons I wanted to go to Dallas Seminary was I wanted to get to know Dr. Howard Hendricks. And I had a chance to do that, to sit under his teaching, to get to know him, to spend some time with him, even to work with him and his leadership center that he was leading. And one of the features of this leadership center was a series of conferences where we were asking business leaders to come in and speak to Christian business leaders in Dallas. Now, I had worked previously before I went into ministry at the corporate office of Chick-fil-A, and I'd gotten to know Truett Cathy, who's the founder of Chick-fil-A. Truett was one of my heroes. Truett's a man of faith. Truett was a wonderful man. I'd gotten to know Truett at Chick-fil-A, gotten to know Professor Hendricks at Dallas Seminary, and I thought, what would it be like? to bring the two men together. And uh, by God's grace, we're able to arrange it. Truett came to Dallas to speak at chapel and do some leadership development with some local business leaders. And I got to pick Truett up from the airport and drive him to a restaurant in Dallas where Dr. Hendricks was, right? And I was on the edge of my seat to hear what these two great men were gonna talk about together. Now, do you know what they talked about for almost the whole dinner? Art Linkletter. <laughs> I have no idea why. Truett had met Art Linkletter a little earlier. And you know, Truett kind of idolized Art Linkletter. He was older than him and he was this healthy, vibrant, and Truett wanted to be like Art Linkletter. So Truett was talking to Prof about Art Linkletter the whole time. And, and Prof was just graciously listening and you know, you're talking about... Art Linkletter. And I, I was so devastated, right? I was like, this is my moment. <laughs> you were these two men, right? I want to hear some incredible wisdom. I didn't care about Art Linkletter. Now, when these two spiritual giants come together in Genesis 14, something very significant happened. We, we get the glimpse of their conversation, and it's important, it's weighty, it's significant. I want us to look at the two things that Melchizedek offered to Abram. The first in verse 18, we already read it, was bread and wine. Now, bread and wine indicated that this was a, a gesture of refreshment, but more than that, the fact that it was wine and not water meant that it was a royal feast. It was a celebration. It was probably a victory celebration for Abram and his men. So that's the first thing Melchizedek offers. The second thing, and more significant that he offers, is the blessing of verses 19 and 20. I want us to relook at that one more time, and then we'll unpack it briefly. Verse 19, we'll pick it up at the blessing. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The word blessed, if you count, occurs three times in these two verses. It takes us back to the last time in Scripture where that word blessed or blessing was concentrated that much. Four times, actually, in Genesis 12. 
four times in the blessing that God spoke to Abram. Now three times in Genesis 14, there is an important reminder to us back to Genesis 12 and we even see through this victory and through the way that Abram is living out his faith, Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is beginning to come true in Abram's life. The title that Melchizedek assigns to the one true God is El Elyon in Hebrew. It's translated God Most High. It's a title that describes God's all-powerful presence above everything. He also describes God as possessor of heaven and earth. And that little phrase leaves no doubt that Melchizedek is talking about and praying to the one true God who created it all, who sustains it all. He goes on to describe this God. He has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now this is, for Abram, a recentering. In other words, if Abram had forgotten who really won the battle, who the true victor was, Melchizedek is reminding him. It wasn't Abram's strategy. It wasn't the might of Abram's men. It was God Most High delivering the enemies into Abram's hands. And I think for Abram, that reminder must have done something similar for him as what Aaron was doing for us earlier, creating space to reflect creating space to remember, creating space to contemplate who we really owe our lives to, who is really at work amidst the battles, amidst the busyness, amidst the joy. It's El Elyon. It's God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth at work. One more note about this blessing. I love the way that Melchizedek assigns God's name to Abram. In other words, he's not describing Abram as God, but he's associating. He says, uh, look at it again just briefly. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high. He's essentially saying this God is Abram's God. It must have been beautiful to Abram's ears to hear his personal name and God's name put together in that way. Reminder to Abram that this one true God is the true God that cares about Abram, that Abram serves, that has appeared to him. I think all these things are going on in the text, in this blessing. Now, how does Abram respond? This is important because two kings, very different from each other, two things are offered to Abram. You'll see the other one in a minute. Abram's going to respond very differently. Melchizedek's offering, if you will, of the blessing and the food, Abram receives Now, we know he receives it because the end of verse 20, it says, he, Abram, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. The only reason that Abram would have tithed to Melchizedek is to recognize that Melchizedek truly was a priest of the true God. Uh, The other thing that's significant is in Hebrew culture, in ancient culture, really, it's always the greater that blesses the lesser. The lesser receives the blessing. The lesser never speaks blessing of the greater. So Abram was, in a sense, recognizing, here is one that, spiritually speaking, is greater than me. And he receives the blessing, and then he gives a tithe to God through the priest, Melchizedek. Now, the writer turns our attention to the other king and what he offers to Abram 
and Abram's response. Let's pick it up in verse 21. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me. Take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. By the way, same title that Melchizedek used. That I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except the young, what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Now, what's going on here? Well, the king of Sodom has lost everything previously in this battle, right? He lost his wealth. He lost his people. He lost his slaves. He lost his goods, his gold. Everything was swept away by these enemy kings. Now, Abram has gone back and retrieved it. And just as Abram is bringing Lot and his family back, he's bringing all the livestock, all the gold, all the people, and he's coming back. But here's the thing. The king of Sodom knows that if Abram wants to, he can hold on to these possessions because he, Abram, is the the victor of the battle. So the spoils go to him. So Sodom says, I'm going to make a deal. And, and literally in the Hebrew, and it's interesting that this king, this evil king, uses very rude and rough Hebrew as he speaks to Abram. He doesn't start with thank you. He doesn't start with graciousness. He doesn't start with a blessing like Melchizedek. I mean, literally, if you look at his words in Hebrew, it's, it's four words long. It says, give me people, you take the goods. In Hebrew, that's just four words. It's like, give me, you take. (laughs) It's this very rough, very rude Hebrew. Now, Abram has a choice to make. And part of me is thinking, why would he give this stuff back to the evil king? Right? Part of me is thinking, maybe this is the way that God has chosen to bless Abram, right? To make his name great. Maybe he gets to keep this stuff, right? Didn't he kind of earn it? But Abram makes a different choice. I want to invite you to think of it this way. This was an opportunity for a major power grab on Abram's part. This was a chance for him to become a power player in the region in a way that he wasn't. This was a chance for him to establish his great name. So you've got these kings over here, these kings over here, and you've got Abram, right? This this, this so-called king with all these things and all these slaves and all these people. Abram didn't go for that. He made a choice. And I think what the author is setting up here is this contrast. Abram received all that God offered through the priest Melchizedek and not even a thread of what the evil king of Sodom offered. And do you see what's going on here? Abram intentionally chose the blessing of the priest king and intentionally rejected all that the so-called world had to offer, the wealth, the power, the prestige, the reputation. And what was Abram's motivation? Well, he shares it with the king. He says, I don't want you down the road to be able to claim any credit for what God is doing in my life. I don't want you to be able to say, I made Abram rich because this is my stuff that he grabbed onto. So Abram does this. He's got all this stuff and he goes, here. 
it's obviously worth more to you than it is to me. Take it. Take it. Now, in my imagination, I have this picture of the king of Sodom smirking when Abram gives it all back, right? The king of Sodom is thinking, yeah, he, he could have had it all. Instead, he's choosing to play small. Well, history will tell us who was playing small. It wasn't Abram. Abram is learning to see with new eyes. Abram is learning to recognize what has true value and what doesn't have true value. Abram is learning to walk by faith, not by sight. Now, what do we learn from all this? Well, I think there's a lot of directions we could go in our application, but I want to kind of bring forth highlight from the text something that's easy to miss if you're not looking for it. And the way that I want to get there is to remind you that Abram is sort of at the top of his game at this point in time, right? He has taken up the sword and won. He has let go in in an unselfish, wonderful decision. He's following God. He's trusting God. He's just had this blessing re-spoken over him. He's at the top of his game. And yet, when Abram's doing everything right, just at the moment when he's doing everything right, one greater than Abram shows up on the scene. And, and here's the part that I think is easy to miss if you're not paying attention to it. The Holy Spirit, through the writer of this text, is showing us that Abram, even when he's at the top of his game, still needed a priest, still needed a mediator, still needed someone to go between, someone to re-speak the blessing in a tangible form for Abram. And so Melchizedek, by the sovereignty of God at this moment in Abram's life, shows up out of nowhere to make intercession for Abram, to re-speak the blessing, and to confirm that the promise is true. Now here's the application for you application for me. If Abram, at one of the pinnacle moments of his faith, needed a mediator, needed a priest, how much more do you and me? The question for us this morning is, do you see your need for a mediator? And do do you feel it? Do do you understand? Are you willing to own your need this morning for someone to go between you and God and make things right? Now, some of you this morning, that's easy, man. You woke up this morning just feeling this sense of heaviness, right? And this this sense of like, I'm not good enough to come before God. Maybe it's been a long while since you really felt close to God and it's really because you don't feel that you're worthy for it. You know you need a mediator, Some of you are just sort of plowing through life, maybe just caught up in the fact that everything's going okay. Maybe you're doing pretty well. You know you're not perfect, but you're doing all right. And although that season in our life can be refreshing sometimes, at other times it just blocks our recognition of our need. In fact, even sometimes our own self-righteousness is in fact the reason for our deepest need for someone to go between us and God. We need a Melchizedek. We need a priest. But not just any priest. We need the priest. We need the one priest. Scripture tells us that there is only one 
true mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. You might think of it this way. We have the priest. We have the true king of righteousness. We have the better, greater Melchizedek who was prophesied. We live in an era where we can look back on the sacrifice of Jesus. And by the way, this is why we don't have the office of priest anymore in our church. Right? Is we don't believe that that mediator role, humanly speaking, is needed for us because Jesus is the mediator. And we look back and we look toward him as the one who makes us right with God, the one who reconciles us with God. So wherever you are this morning, whether you really know your need and recognize it, or whether you're sort of just callous to your need, or maybe you just don't feel anything at all, wherever you are this morning, would you look to the true high priest? Would you look to the Melchizedek that was prophesied? The one that this man, Melchizedek, Genesis 14, pointed to because you need him. Whether you realize it or not this morning, whether you're in tune to it or not this morning, you need him. Because apart from him, you're lost. You're dead in your sins. You're blind to the very things that would make you fully alive. You're callous to the voice of God in your own life. But with him, you're found. You're truly alive. Your heart is opened up to taste and see that the Lord is good. So this morning, just like every morning, you need to remember that you need a mediator. You need a go-between. And you need to remember that your priest has come. If you've put your faith in him, then he is interceding for you even right now. Now, he's literally going before the Father saying, this one, Father, is mine. (laughs) This one's sins are forgiven. This one is blameless. Not because they earned it, because I earned it, Jesus says. This is the voice of your high priest. This is the voice of your mediator. Now, if you haven't put your faith yet in Jesus Christ. And I know there's a bunch of you, many of you that may be here that haven't ever put your faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you one question. Are you weary from trying to be good enough for God to be pleased with you? Or are you weary yet of just wondering whether you're good enough for God to be pleased with you? There is only one who is good enough. There's only one mediator. There's only one who earned it. And what scripture calls you to do is simply put your faith in Jesus Christ to do for you what you can't do on your own, which is to be good enough to get to God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ that the death of Jesus on that cross paid the penalty that your sins deserved. And in place of the death, you now get life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Now, whether you've received that gift by faith or whether you have yet to, I want to point out to you one more incredible detail of this text as we begin to wrap up. Melchizedek offered Abram bread and wine to celebrate a victory and refresh Abram's soul. Jesus Christ, our priest, offers us the bread of his broken body, the wine of his shed blood. 
He give this, gives this to us because he has been victorious. Not just over a skirmish, but he's been victorious over death. And he has rescued not just Lot and his family, he has rescued you and me. We are his prize. He has done this. He has won the victory to set us free. And we remember this even this morning in the taking of the bread and taking of the cup. So this is the final way we want to create some space for us this morning is we want to celebrate together the Lord's table. And as the elements are passed, Aaron is going to be back out here. He's going to be playing. Not singing, just playing. I want you to use some space and time as the elements are passed just to reflect, to remember, to open up your heart. For some of you, it may be the first time that you could ever say, I trust in this Jesus as my mediator, my priest, and I'm counting on him to make me right with God. Right? If that's your heart's cry this morning for the first time, this is your freedom day. This is your salvation day. And if that's the cry of your heart, whether for the first time or the thousandth time, I invite you to partake of the elements as they come around. So they'll be passed. In fact, let's go ahead and start passing them now. In a minute, Aaron will play. And I I want you, as you're reflecting, as Aaron plays, I want you to ask this one question of yourself. In what ways do I need Jesus, the high priest, right now? In what ways do I, right now, in this moment, need Jesus? a mediator. Let's go ahead and have this space and this time to reflect.